And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. In 1973, psychiatrist Carl Menninger, he was the founder of the Menninger Clinic Clinic there in Topeka, Kansas, he wrote a bestseller titled, Whatever Became of Sin. Now think of the year, 1973. That's 50 years ago. He realized that the concept of sin was vanishing from our culture. He argued, in the lifetimes of many of us, sin has been redefined. First, as a crime, that is, as transgression of the law of man rather than transgression of the law of God. And second, as symptoms. Since symptoms are caused by things external to us, to the individual, they are seen as effects for which the offender is not responsible. Thus, it happened that sin against God has been redefined and dismissed as the unfortunate effects of bad circumstances, and no one is to blame." End quote. Now, that wasn't his views. He just noticed that that was what was going on. We now view many behaviors that the Bible calls sin as psychological or emotional issues for which therapy and not repentance is the solution. I've read polls that show that even among evangelical Christians, many do not view uh, premarital sex or homosexual behavior as sin. Churches offer anger management classes rather than uh, anger repentance classes. They offer groups to help you overcome your addictions, not your sin. Sin has become a disease that we treat therapeutically, not a behavior for which we are responsible. Christians regularly watch Hollywood's latest movies that are rife with filthy language, sexual scenes, and an overabundance of violence without any concern that they're actually disobeying Scripture. Well, in our text, Paul is defending himself against critics who allege that he taught the law itself was sin. Paul was teaching that if you try to gain right standing with God by keeping the law, you are doomed to fail. The law was not given to make us right before God. To the contrary, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3.20. The law brings about wrath. That's 4.15. The law came in so that transgression would increase. That's 5.20. And so Paul shows in verse 4 that through our union with Christ, we died to the law in order that we might bear fruit for God. And we have been released from the law so that now we serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of letter. That's verse 6. Now Paul knew that his critics would react to this teaching by accusing him of saying that the law is actually sin. And his response is there in verse 7, by no means. You see, the problem is not with the law. Rather, the problem is with our sin. When you mix God's holy law with our sin, it it produces negative results. Kind of like when you put uh, two or you mix two incompatible chemicals. Now, verses 11 and 12, they, they wrap up Paul's argument that the law is not the problem. Rather, sin is the problem. And as we saw last time, 
he personifies sin as an active force. It's not just what we would say, oh, that is sin. What he did is sin. No, it's a force that does something in us. Now, verse 13 serves as a hinge. Okay, it restates the argument from verses 7 through 12, but it introduces verses 14 through 25. Now, we can sum up his thought there today in verses 11 through 13 is this. God's law reveals the holiness of His commandments and the utter sinfulness of sin so that we will hate our sin. Let's pray. Father, there's not one of us in here that, that fully understands the depth of our own sin, uh, just the depth and, and the insidiousness of sin itself. So God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, help us to hear, help our hearts to understand this truth so that we can call sin for what it is in our, in, in our lives first and foremost and then in others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, number one, God's law reveals the holiness of His commands. Paul concludes in verse 12 there, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, by the law, Paul means the law as a whole. And when he repeats the commandments, he may be referring to that tenth commandment against coveting. He's just mentioned that in verse 6. Or he may be just referring to the moral commands in general. But he means that the law as a whole and every single part of it is holy and righteous and good. That's the word that he uses. He piles up these terms to emphasize his point in verse 7 that in no way is the law sinful. The reason that the law is holy and righteous and good is it was given to us by God who is holy and righteous and good. God's law is holy. God's holiness means that He is altogether separate from us and separate from sin. Christ's aim for His church there, according to Ephesians 5, is that she, the church, would be holy and blameless. Applied to us, God's commandments show us how to live separately from this evil world in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. That, God, that God's law is, is righteous means that it is right, it, it is just. God Himself is a standard of what is right. Way back in Deuteronomy 32, Moses said of God, For all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he if we violate God's moral commandments we are wrong simply because God is always right his standards are not relative changing with the culture changing over time we can't persuade him to bend his righteous commands to fit what we may think is right truth is what it is and it doesn't change now, God's commandments are also good because they come from God, who is good. And as with righteousness, God is the final standard of what is good. This means that all of God's commandments are for our good. To violate His commands is to bring trouble and hardship on ourselves. If we want to live that truly good life, we must then follow God's good commandments. Now, since as new believers, new covenant believers, we're not under the law of Moses. We've covered that over the last few weeks, all right? Uh, so we may wonder, which of the Old Testament commands apply to us? Now, I really should have taken time to address the various views on this because there are many. 
but I'm not going to. I believe, well, yeah, are we obligated to keep, let's just go to this one thing. Are we obligated to keep the Ten Commandments? In Somebody said yes, I heard that. Uh, Paul calls them a ministry of death, talking about the law, in, that are in letters engraved on stone. So we know he's talking about those Ten Commandments there. That's in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. But in the sense that the Ten Commandments serve as more than a summary, because they actually expand on it, the two great commandments that Jesus gives us, which are simply a repeat of something found in the Old Testament, to love God and to love others, they are valid and binding for today. Also, all of the Ten Commandments except that of the Sabbath command, they're repeated in the New Testament. Now, I believe that the Sabbath command was fulfilled in Christ. The exhortation to us as believers is not to forsake the assembling together. Okay, it doesn't come to us in the form of a command, but a, an exhortation. So we're not under that command in the legal sense that the Israelites were in the Old Testament. So Paul wants us to be clear that God's law is holy, it's righteous, and it is good. Being great, being under grace, which Paul says is what we are now, does not mean living a law in a lawless manner. Well, number two, God's law reveals sin as sinful beyond measure. Paul concludes in verse 13 there, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments, that's the law, through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. That's, that's hard to, we think of sin and we think we know what it is, but he says that sin is actually, the law makes sin sinful beyond measure. Spurgeon put it this way, the law was not the cure of the disease, much less the creator of it, but it was the revealer of the disease that lurked in the constitution of man. In other words, it's in there. <laughs> this sin, this urge of rebellion and law simply makes it come alive. He goes on then to show when Paul wanted to come up with one particular word to describe how bad sin is, he didn't call it exceedingly black or horrible or deadly or anything else. Rather, he wanted to find the very worst word. He called sin by its own name. It is sinful beyond measure. There is nothing as evil as sin. We tend to not look at it that way, do we? Oh, I messed up here. No, you transgressed against God. God gave His law for our good, and so when we deliberately throw it off and, and trample it underfoot, that law exposes the utter sinfulness of our sin in at least four ways. A, sin is sinful beyond measure because it is rebellion against our loving and kind Heavenly Father. When God gave Adam and Eve the command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that command was for their good, to keep them from the consequences of death. Now, we can compare that to parents who tell the little children, don't go play in the road. He's not, the parents aren't trying to derive them of some fun. They're trying to keep them safe. So when we sin, when we rebel against the God who is loving and kind towards us, it's messed up. 
He is never mean. He's never harsh or cruel. Rather, sin is the monster that this verse drags into the light so that we can see it. We need to see sin for what it is. It's rebellion against our loving and kind Heavenly Father. Will be, sin is sinful beyond measure because it takes a good thing, the law, and uses it to kill us. Sin takes the, the good law of God and turns it into an instrument of death. It would, be taking, it would be like taking a scalpel and using it to murder someone. Is the scalpel bad? Well, no. The scalpel is a good and useful tool in the hands of a skilled physician. The sinner who used the scalpel to murder someone, they're the culprit. Sin takes God's holy commandments and uses them to kill us. Now, if you look, Paul mentions the word death or killed in verses 9, 10, 11, and 13. He means that the law brings us under God's righteous, eternal condemnation because we have deliberately violated it over and over. So, we should fight against our sin with as much effort as we would struggle against an intruder who broke into our home and was seeking to murder us. We'll see... Sin is sinful beyond measure because it involves deliberate violation of God's good and perfect will for us. Paul said back in 4.15, where there is no law, there is no violation. This is not to say that people did not sin before the law, but rather to say that the law heightens the sinfulness of sin by showing us that we are deliberately going, going against what God has commanded for our good. Our conscience may nag at us that something is wrong, but when we read the explicit command in the Bible and then go against it, we're just thumbing our noses at God. We're saying, God, you don't know what is best for me. Uh, I, I know better than you do, and I'm going to go my own way. Do you understand that that's how Isaiah defines sin? He says, all of us like sheep have gone our own way. We've each turned our own way. That is sin. The commandment shows sin to be sinful beyond measure. Well, D, sin is sinful beyond measure because it uses deception to kill us. Now, Don Richardson, he wrote a book and he had a film, and they're both titled Peace Child. He was a missionary, uh, and he was writing, and, and the movie was about the wicked practice of the Sawi tribe before he brought the gospel to them. They extolled deception as a virtue. They would lure an outsider into their midst as a friend. They would treat him as a king and feed him well, but they were literally fattening him up for the slaughter. At the opportune time, when the victim thought that the Sawi tribal leaders were his friends, they would just sarcastically, or sadistically, I should say, smile as they killed him. And then they would eat him. Cannibalism. And so when Richardson actually became friends with them and shared the gospel and the story of Jesus, they thought that Judas was the real hero. He used deception to kill Jesus. Well, in the same way, sin is sinful beyond measure because it uses deception to kill us. In two other places, in 2 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2, Paul uses this same verb, deception, to describe the serpent's deception of Eve in the garden. Here's one commentator's thoughts. He shows three ways that the serpent deceived Eve. First, he distorted and misrepresented God's commandment by drawing attention only to the negative part of it 
and ignoring the positive. Do this and what? You'll live. You won't die. Second, he made her believe that God would not punish disobedience with death as he had warned he would do. Third, he used the very commandment itself to insinuate doubt about God's goodwill to suggest the possibility that she and Adam could assert themselves in opposition to God. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he lists nine ways that sin deceive us. I've, I've incorporated his list into a broader list of 15 uh, ways that sin deceives us. Now, I don't expect you to remember all these, but they are there in your thing. If you want to just carry these around and look at them, that one might be a good thing. But I want you to see just how dangerous the enemy of sin really is and the deception that it uses. Okay, so number one. Sin deceives us into thinking that outward obedience alone pleases God, whereas we really need to please God on the heart level. This was the downfall of the Pharisees, wasn't it? They thought that they were keeping all of God's commandments. Paul thought about this, thought this way about himself. But Jesus rebuked them because their hearts were far from God. Sin deceives us so that we congratulate ourselves for the outward obedience to God and the whole while, our hearts are corrupt. Sure, I, I cut corners at work, but it doesn't hurt anybody. Sure, I, I, talk, uh, I talk behind their back, but it doesn't really affect them. But God looks on the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Number two, sometimes sin changes its tactics and tells, it, tells us that everything is, is, is hopeless. So we might as well just keep on sinning. We wrongly conclude, I've failed again and again, and so there's no hope for me. I might as well just give in and keep sinning. That's a deception. Number three, sin deceives us to presume on God's grace. Man, this is a big one. Sin tells us that it doesn't matter whether or not we are actually holy. It says, don't worry about your sin. It's not hurting anybody. Besides, you can always get forgiven later. Man, what a lie. Number four, sin deceives us into thinking that it will bring true and lasting happiness while holiness will only bring us misery. Now, this is such a common ploy, you would think that we would see right through it, but we don't. It works over and over again. An affair will bring happiness, but being faithful to your marriage vows, that will make you miserable. Now, related to this uh, is the next form of deception, number five. Sin deceives us into thinking that we have a right to happiness while we forget that we have a responsibility to holiness. That's worth repeating. Sin deceives us into thinking that we have a right to happiness, right? That, you know, to pursue happiness, the pursuit of happiness and whatever, and, and wherever it's found in one of our documents that we became a nation with, Right? but we forget that we have a responsibility to holiness. I've known Christians who, who walk away from their marriages with the excuse, I deserve some happiness in my life. My marriage has only brought me misery. How can this new relationship be wrong when it seems so right? But again, what about the biblical command to be holy? Number six, sin deceives us by getting us to discount the consequences of willful disobedience. Satan lied to Eve. You surely will not die. 
God would not be so mean as to impose such harsh consequences for such a minor thing as eating a piece of fruit, would he? God's loving and gracious. He won't punish your sin. No. Seven, sin deceives us into thinking that we've earned some free passes to sin because of all we've done to serve the Lord. <laughs> this may have been what led to David's downfall. He was a king. Didn't that give him some extra privileges? He had fought and won many battles. He'd written many psalms. Didn't he deserve a break? Several years ago, it came out that a well-known pastor, he relieved the stress of his ministry responsibilities by going to a male prostitute, a homosexual prostitute. Talk about being deceived. Number eight, sin deceives us by getting us to swap the labels and call it something much more, you know, acceptable. It's not adultery. It's an affair. It's, it's a fling. Uh, it's not a perversion. It's, it's just being gay. It's not stealing. It's just taking what the company owes me but won't pay me. I'm not angry. I just have a short fuse. It's not gossip. I just wanted to share a prayer concern. You thought that funny, huh? Okay, we got to talk tomorrow. Number nine. Sin deceives us by making us think that we're normal when we sin and to think that holy people are the weird ones. We look around at the world and conclude that yielding to temptation is normal. And we've seen patterns in our lives that would suggest the same thing. Yes, it's normal. The weirdos are those holy people who actually obey God. Or you may think, well, I'll bet that they're no different than I am. I bet they have secret sins, but they're just hypocrites. At least I'm honest about who I am. Yeah, and if you don't deal with that sin that you're honest about, you're going to pay a price. Number 10, sin deceives us by working by degrees so that eventually that which would have shocked us is now accepted as normal. You ever been painting in a room and like 45 minutes later, somebody walks in and they go, oh, that's an awful smell. You've, you've become good with it. You don't even notice it. And you're like, hmm, right? You just kind of get used to it. The prophet Hosea, he chided Israel. This is in Hosea 7. He says, gray hairs are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Man, can you imagine someone going gray without being aware of it? Tyler's already watching his because he's, he's just in his early 30s and he's showing gray. But he says that's the pattern of his family, okay? The prophet was using that humorous analogy to show how we drift spiritually without being aware of how far off course we really are. The first time you watch a sex scene in a movie, it shocks you. But after you've seen that junk a few dozen times, yeah, you just, it's just no big deal anymore. Uh, when you first hear profanity, it jars you. But after being around it for a while, you don't even wince, and you may even toss off a bad word or two yourself without being aware of it. Uh, I, I've got a, a great example. Uh, how many grew up in the generation when women did not wear pants outside? 
Only, only a few of you in here are old enough to know what I'm talking about. My mother, she'd be 105 now, she never wore pants outside. She only wore them in the home. I had somebody, this was years ago, on a Sunday night, I came in with my shirt untucked, and they couldn't believe that I would step in a church with my shirt untucked. And she was sitting there in a pantsuit. And I said, let me share with you some perspective. So I told her the story about my mother and what my mother and dad, daddy, would have thought about her coming to church in a pantsuit. You see what I'm saying? Our culture <laughs> is sliding out from underneath us, and it's going rather quickly. Number 11, uh-oh. Number 11, sin deceives us by making us angry at the law, feeling that God is against us when He prohibits something. Sin gets us to believe that God and His law are unreasonable, impossible, unjust, unfair. Does He expect me to be perfect? Why doesn't He just give me a break now and again? He must not care about me or He wouldn't give me such unreasonable commands. Do you know that Scripture says that His... His commands are not burdensome <laughs> when you follow them. Number 12, sin deceives us by making us think highly of ourselves. Uh, you're smart enough to figure out what is best for you. You're able to determine right and wrong while without putting yourself under God's legalistic standards. Think for yourself. 13, sin deceives us by telling us that the law is oppressive, keeping us from developing the gifts and talents that are within us. God's moral standards are holding you back from reaching your full potential. Use the brain that God gave you. You don't have to be restricted by that outdated book, the Bible. 14. Sin makes righteousness look drab and unattractive. You mean to tell me you've only had sex with your marriage partner? How boring. You go to church every Sunday? How restrictive. What a way to mess up a weekend. 15, sin deceives us by getting us to compare ourselves with other sinners rather than comparing ourselves to God's holy standards. The psalmist says that sin flatters us in our own eyes. That's Psalm 36 too. It makes us think that we're not so bad because we compare our relatively minor faults with the really bad things that others do. By comparison, we're not so bad. Here's the problem. The standard is not what others do, and it's not even what you do. The standard is what God's law, what His Word commands. Well, that's 15 things, and you can take that list, you can burn it, because you, you, there's some things that hit you too hard. Or you can actually read over it for a few days in the morning and say, hmm, sin, how are you deceiving me? Because sin is ultimately deceptive. So God's law reveals the holiness and the goodness of His commands along with the utter sinfulness of sin. It is sinful beyond measure. So what should our response be? Well, number three, the practical result of understanding the holiness of God's commands and that sin is sinful beyond measure is that we should hate our own sin. Now, I'm, I'm only inferring this because Paul doesn't state it directly, although he goes on to show how much he hates his own propensity towards sin. But the Bible is clear. 
Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. And we're not just supposed to hate evil in others, yes, but first and foremost, we need to hate our own sin. Take that log out of your own eye before you go doing it to somebody else. It was Paul's hatred of his own sin that causes him to cry out a little bit later in this chapter we're in, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Do you hate your own sin? Do you hate it enough to stop making excuses for it and to give serious thought and effort as to how not to sin? Sin is ugly, ugly, and more ugly. To watch a believer fall into sin is like watching a dog lick up its own vomit. God's, God's Word shows us how to walk in the light so that we do not fall into that mire of sin. Love the Word. Read it. Memorize it. Above all else, obey it. Don't let sin can kill you. Rather, hate your sin enough to kill it. Let's pray. Father, it's an ugly picture we've looked at this morning, and it's sin. It's something that we are all familiar with. We're all too familiar with. And so, God, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts that would create that righteous hatred of sin, particularly in our own lives. That's what you're after, Father. So, God, speak that truth to our hearts. Help us to be obedient. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I came up, we had just sang... Um, it is well with my soul. And I ask, is it well with your soul? And that's what this, this sermon is really about. Uh, maybe you have no struggle with sin, okay? That's because you do not know God. You do not know His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, Paul's already told us, and we're going to look at it more as we progress, especially over the next couple of weeks, there is going to be a battle. And it's going to be a battle you don't understand, but there's some part of you that wants to do good, but there's something else that, oh, it just messes with you thoroughly. So we're going to talk about that. But maybe there's some of you out there that recognize in your own life, yeah, you sin kind of freely. It's just not that big of a deal. Well, that tells me, that you're outside of Christ. You have not come to know God through Jesus Christ. It's simple. You're separated from Him. All right. We saw a great illustration yesterday. You had a, a, a yellow ball, or a red ball, which represented God, a yellow ball, which represented man, and then He pushed them on a stick and they touched. And it was pretty cool. No matter where each ball went when they were connected, it was with you. So God was always with you. But then He inserted a blue ball in between. What do you think the blue ball represented? Sin. It separates you from God. The Bible uses some hard words. Paul particularly. There's hostility. There's enmity between you and God as long as you're not in Christ, if you are still of this world. That hostility is what's nagging at you. You know there's a God. There's something inside that's saying, hey, you need to listen. Today, it's very simple. In his illustration, he took the cross and he stuck it in the blue, and then he lifted it, and the blue ball came off the stick. This guy did magic. It was pretty cool. But it lifted it off the stick, and all of a sudden, you can come back together. It's because Christ took our sin, right? Second Corinthians 5.21, For He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Maybe you need Christ today.
I encourage you. If God's dealing with you, you come and you talk to me about it. If you're a believer, this list probably poked you multiple different ways. As I was going through it, I was going, oh boy, yeah, okay, I recognize that, I recognize that. God's letting you know this is what you need to work on, right? This is how sin is deceiving you, even as you walk with Christ. Sin, just because you're in Christ, but wouldn't it be nice if sin just went away once you're in Christ? It doesn't. It's an ongoing struggle. This process of sanctification, of being formed and conformed into the image of Christ, it is ongoing for the rest of your life, either until Jesus comes again or until you pass away and go to be with God. That's when sin's going to be eradicated in your life. Until then, we're going to struggle. Recognize that. Fight against it. Because I promise you, no, no matter how attractive it looks, sin only deceives what did Jesus say about Satan? He is a liar and the father of lies. That's sin. That's what sin is. Just be aware of sin in your own life. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.